One of, one of the things that's kind of, uh, kind of unnerving is when you discover lots of people have your name. Like I always thought Christopher Wiley was somewhat, you know, out of the ordinary. It's not like an everyday name. Uh, and then I did a Google search and discovered that there are lots of people named Christopher Wiley, and many of them I don't like. And uh, I belong to a thing called Academy Edu, and where they, uh, you know, are a repository of academic papers that, um, you know, they try to attribute to the correct people. And there are like four people who are have my name, uh, and uh, I get asked all the time about whether or not I wrote their paper. So I, you know, I've written stuff. So there are things that are attributed to me. But, but here's here's one one I got today. Uh, is this publication yours, Christopher? Is this public? Help us to keep your profile up to date. Impaired placental trophoblast lineage differentiation in alkbehi mice. Yes, I wrote that. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> that's an important one. Is that academia.edu? Yeah, that's academia.edu, yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, anyway, it's not me. <laughs> um, so that's why I go by C.R. Wiley. It's not because I have any pretension to being like a, like a British author, you know, like all the British guys are like identified by their initials. That's not what it, uh, it has to do with at all. It's just, it helps people find me. <laughs> well, um, we are in chapter 26 of the Confession, uh, the Communion of Saints. And this is one of those uh, kind of surprising chapters in the Confession where you see a whole lot more uh, going on and uh, see its relevance in a much more, I guess, uh, important way or significant way than you might have assumed. You know, it's one of those chapters where you say, oh yeah, communion of saints, got that, we're good. Fellowship meal after church, we're good. <laughs> that kind of thing. But it's, uh, it's got a lot of uh, important uh, implications. And in the history of Christianity, Christians have got every doctrine wrong in every way possible. So one of the one things you have to do is kind of go through all the ways we've messed up on stuff. And there are some interesting ways we've messed up on this. And uh, so we're actually going to get into some of those ways you can get it wrong and then try to get into, you know, can we get a little closer to being right? Um, so the second paragraph here, well, let me start with prayer. Father, thank you that we can gather this way. Uh, we're grateful that uh, we uh, enjoy the communion of saints. We're glad that you are the one who make us saints and we're not the ones who, who achieve that status through our works, but because of what you've done for us, you have made us so. And pray, Lord, that you'll help us understand, though, what our duties are uh, when it comes to our fellow Christians and to you and to the world at large. In Christ's name, amen. So, saints by profession, this is number two, are bound to maintain a, a holy fellowship. This is one of those instances where ah and an or I and, you know, it feels awkward to say an holy fellowship and not a holy fellowship. I think we're in a transition point in our language when it comes to that because whenever the, a letter or a word begins with H, you're supposed to put an N behind the A. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but that's technically the correct thing to do, but it just feels weird to say it that way. And holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion as God offereth opportunity is to be extended unto all those in every place Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. So, so this is the, the challenge uh, when it comes to, you know, the, the breadth of the communion. Uh, but anyway, let's 
walk through this. <coughs> so let's just start with saints. Define saints. Any thoughts, any suggestions in terms of, yeah? Well, I, I think saints can be used as all believers, uh -huh. uh, past tense, present, yeah. and I guess future. Right. I mean, there will be, you know, God's still redeeming people for himself. Right. So I think collectively that's how saints can be used. Right, so David mentioned that uh, it's basically the church in the past, the present, and the future, uh, those who have been redeemed. Right now, the term uh, "saint" uh, this comes from the Latin "sanctus," and uh, it means to be made holy. Do you feel particularly holy today? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> Get dressed up. I'm in church. I got kind of that holy vibe going. But my wife's bringing me a cough drop. Thank you. <laughs> I've got a cough thing I'm dealing with. Those are the rest of my cough drops. <laughs> Whoops, I just dropped my cough drop. <laughs> I got another cough drop. Five second rule, I'll go wash it off later. Anyway, um, so if we, if we define saint by a performance, none of us will qualify, right? Because, you know, we sin, we fall short of the glory of God. Even after we're redeemed, we're, you know, when Paul talks about you know, he's still striving. He's still the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's not there yet. Even Paul had bad days, you know, and Peter had bad days, you know, and these are after, you know, they have been identified as saints. So, you know, there's kind of two sides to it. There's saintly behavior, right? And then there is uh, the status as saints. So, are you an American? Yeah. Do you feel like an American today? Well, maybe. <laughs> I feel very American on the 4th of July, you know. But some days I don't feel so Americanish. Uh, are you a good American? You I know you are. You are a good American. <laughs> I quit I quit swearing when I Well, you not allowed to swear if you're an American? Okay. Well, so now you know. <laughs> no swearing. No American is allowed to swear, according to Molly. But anyway, uh, you know, there are days where like, uh, so my wife was speeding yesterday. She was a bad American. <laughs> she got pulled over because she was going 41 in a 25 mile zone. Bad American. But she was still an American. Now, the officer threatened to, you know, sort of remove her American status, you know, her citizenship. She begged and said, please don't take away my citizenship. I'm, I'm playing with this. <laughs> but that, you know, when we think about our, our status in the church, I think that's a, an important way to think about it. When we're redeemed, we're adopted, you know, when we think about the ordo salutis, the order of salvation, we're adopted. Some days you're a good adopted kid, and some days you're not a good adopted kid, but you're still an adopted kid, right? You're there in the family. Now, you know, uh, in a human uh, family, can you behave so badly that you're disowned? Yes, that can happen. You know, sometimes you see these television uh, sort of interviews with the mom of the perpetrator. Yes, he killed 37 people, but he was a good boy. <laughs> that kind of thing. So how far does he have to go before you disown him? You know, that's kind of thing. But uh, when it comes to our, our status in the church, uh, the, the fact that we're saints is because uh, of what Christ has done for us, right? Uh, the fact that the Spirit has worked in our hearts. And obviously, we, uh, we should be working toward being more saintly, right, and striving to grow in grace and so forth, but we're in. We're in. Now, one of the things that's interesting to think about in this respect is, um, you know, the Catholic Church and saints. You know, what, what you have in that uh, environment is um, truly exemplary people, in their opinion, uh, super arrogation. It's like when you go beyond, above and beyond right, you are just so awesome that we are going to acknowledge your sainthood, uh, you know, before the final judgment. 
we're going to say you were definitely a saint. And then they have all these different things that they do to try to, you know, sort of vet whether or not you're saying one of them is a miracle. Is you aware, you're aware, of that, aware of that? So there's actually a uh, whole process that's, uh, and then the devil's advocate, are you familiar with that term? There's actually a, a Roman cleric that gets to be the devil's advocate. So the devil's advocate is the accuser. No, Mother Teresa wasn't that great. On March 13th, she swore. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, can't be American or a saint, you know, you know that, but that's the thing, you know, so when we think about saints, one of the things I think that's important to remember is Protestantism helped to recover this fact that we're made saints by God, not through our own efforts, but at the same time, we demonstrate that we're saints by what? Obeying the law, you know, wanting to do what's right, those kinds of things, even though we're imperfect and fall short. But... So if we're, if we're talking about the communion of saints and we're not really sure you're a saint, then you say, well, I'm not having to do that uh, with you because uh, I'm not sure you've passed, you know, that kind of thing. You get what I'm getting at? So saints, so saints by profession, there's an interesting thing. What does that mean, saints by profession? I'm a saint. Is that what are they getting at? I think in part, but it's the profession of faith. Right? We're saying, um, you know, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. You know, if you believe in your heart and confess with your lips, you know, from Romans. So that's the profession. So now, can people fake it? It happens all the time. Now, I'm, I'm not saying this because I want you to do something about it, but I want you to know whenever I get a business card with the ichthus on it, I'm like, whoa, watch out. This guy might be on the make. He's trying to use his, his status as a Christian to maybe get me to buy something at a higher price than I would otherwise, something like that. I'm being a little facetious, but I think you maybe get the drift. Uh, but saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship. That's an interesting way to put it, bound. Uh, do you feel bound uh, to maintain the fellowship? I think uh, we have lost uh, a, an appropriate way of thinking about this. Um, remember that hymn, that line, we are one in the bond of love? So there are bonds that are good, the bonds of matrimony, the bonds of the church. Um, you belong, and because you belong, there's a kind of a tie, there you go, family ties, that kind of thing. We're, we're tied together. Now, maybe some days you feel like loosening it up a little bit. <laughs> maybe you feel like, you know, you want a little extra slack in the line so you can kind of go out here and do stuff, but you're still tied in. There's another way to put it, tied in, you know. There are, there's a lot of language that works, uh, you know, in this manner because there are con the connections are real. They're not just in our heads. The connections are, are real and, and we're bound together. So there's a duty to... Uh, stay in touch, help each other out, those kinds of things. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah. As we talk about with the Lord's Supper every Sunday, the benefits that we receive from Christ are not benefits that we can enjoy outside of Christ. And if we are enjoying them really, then we are really members of His body and we must you know, have fellowship with one another right. as a result. So we can't we can't take the goodness of God outside that context and right. still have. A lot of people try. I've got family members who try. You know, uh, I've known many people who try, and sometimes I've tried. <laughs> you know, where you, where it's got my personal relationship with with God. You know, and that's all that matters is who needs you. You know, I, I remember I actually came across a, a Christian song that said that, and and, and it just I you know I'm. You know, I've got my personal relationship with God. Who needs you? <laughs> it's actually like a line in the, in the song. <laughs> that person who had a bad day in church. <laughs> now, when we think about that, you know, when we think about the fellowship, is it always sweet and nice and, uh, you know, comfortable and affirming? 
know, some of, some of the best stuff that happens for us is the stuff that kind of rubs us the wrong way. And there's kind of a sanctifying uh, effect that can occur when that happens, right? Uh, it's not a pleasant thing to experience, but in retrospect, you say, wow, I really grew through that period. You know, I'm not the same person I was. I'm in a better place now, even though it was a very difficult time dealing with that really ornery person or whatever. Uh, so, you know, uh, I think distressing disguises. It, I, I mentioned Mother Teresa a little while ago, and I'm not like a big Mother Teresa person, right? But said, she said a few things that were really worthwhile. And one of the things is when she was talking about working with the poor, and of course she was you know, trying to help lepers and stuff like that. And, you know, the Lord uh, said, you know, when you donate unto the least of these, you donate unto me. Um, she said, uh, sometimes the Lord appears to us in very distressing disguises. You know, when you're dealing with somebody or a situation or an illness, it's just like, oh, you know, what do I do with that? I mean, that's just so awful to, to even have to, to deal with. Um, anyway, it's just a thought. Any other thoughts along that line? Yeah, David. Um, the word fellowship, is there... You kind of like dissect words. Is there something? Well, it's a fun. If, in English, of course, the term fellows in a ship, I mean, that's literally what it means. We're going somewhere and we're stuck in this boat. <laughs> I like to get out, but it's like a thousand miles to land. <laughs> you know? Make but, sure you bring beer. <laughs> that's right. Well, there, there you go. There's another thing. Why did, the, why did the pilgrims land at Plymouth Rock? They'd run out of beer. People don't know that literally that's what had happened. Uh, so, so the water was so bad that you couldn't drink it. The only stuff that was safe to drink was the alcohol. That's one of the things that people, you know, it's before refrigeration and before all the things that we know, know today. They didn't understand the bio, sort of the chemistry of why it worked. They just noticed that when I drink the beer, I don't get sick. <laughs> and that was sort of like, you know, don't drink any water there, Junior. Have your beer. <laughs> maybe we should, for Thanksgiving, have turkey, dressing, potatoes, and maybe beer. Well, you know, if you want to really do it the way the pilgrims did. Sanctify it. A good uh, housewife in Germany was a beer brewer, you know. Anyway, I remind my wife of that. <laughs> She said, I'm a bad wife. I'm a bad wife. <laughs> Not only does she speed. <laughs> I intercede for her every day. <laughs> anyway. Um, now, performing such spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification. Mutual level edification. So here's an interesting thing to think about. Um, again, I think we tend to think about that entirely, entirely in sort of sweet terms, mutual edification. Sometimes mutual edification can be hard to take, right? So when somebody confronts at you about something, uh, it's like, you know, our first response is always to defend ourselves, you know, feel, feel bad for ourselves, you know, and that kind of thing. But, you know, I think... A measure of spiritual maturity is how quick you recover and how quick you can sort of like think about it and try to draw out of it the thing that's helpful. So like when we think about uh, venom, um, you know, an apo uh, apothecary, you know, can, dr can extract from venom medicine that would be useful to somebody. Uh, and I think sometimes, even when people don't mean it to be helpful, they just mean it to be hurtful, <laughs> you can still draw something out of it. You see, I'm getting it, and you say, wow, you know, I never really thought about myself as that much of a jerk, but maybe I am. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing? Or you, you start to re just reflect on it and say, there's something about this. So, by the way, I'm, I'm going to tell you something that, I, that I've done, um, not because I want you to do it, but because this is something that... Occasionally, I'll get a letter, a note, very critical about something I did or said or whatever. I save them. I go back and read them again. You know, a couple years later, I'm like, wow, you know, 
They were so wrong. <laughs> no, you know what I'm getting at. It's, it's, a, it's a humbling experience. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an exercise that you can engage in where you're like, wow, you know, I, I just, I need, to, I need to remember at the very least that, that people uh, can see things in me that I can't see in myself, at the very least. I need to know that. I need to remember that. And then I can maybe, okay, how much of that is right? Maybe they're 50% right. Okay, well, the 50% is still helpful, right? You know, there are problems about this. You know, it's, it's better to, you know, have a friend who corrects you than flatters you, right? I think that's the, that's the Wiley paraphrase, right? So mutual edification, but obviously mutual edification also includes encouraging words, you know, compliments, things that lift your spirits, things that uh, help you to, you know, sort of direct your attention to the hills from where our help comes from, you know, that kind of stuff. That's really great, too. So I don't, I don't mean to, like, uh, get you all criticizing each other, <laughs> but I'm just trying to help you as a, as a person who maybe receives criticism every once in a while. Maybe think about it a little differently. That person may not be as much the enemy as you might think they are. They might actually be a really helpful person in your life at that moment, maybe even without intending to be. Maybe they really are your enemy, but the fact that they can see some things that you can't see is good for you, and you can maybe work at things and correct things. Yeah, Mark. With this idea, too, there doesn't even have to be, when, you, when you're in a body like this, there doesn't even have to be a case where there's a confrontation that's personal. You could be sitting in a class like this, yeah. and somebody asks a question, and you think, wow, yeah. I would have never come up with that question. But right. now all of a sudden, you've been edified taking you to a different place that you would If you were at home, yeah. sitting under your tree, worshiping God in your own ignorance, yeah. you don't get any of that influence from others. And then maybe the fact that they would ask something that's, let's call it a little bit stupid. Yeah. And they get corrected in that and you get corrected because yeah. you would you thought the same thing. All yeah. that is really valuable in occurring in an environment of, of the body meeting together. Yeah, when, you're, when it's just you and Jesus under the tree on a beautiful day <laughs> kind of thing, uh, well, you've got this sort of self-reinforcing loop. Now, of course, even, the, you know, you know, even in that situation, the Lord can break through. You can read something in Scripture maybe that checks you or whatever. But you're right. I mean, sometimes there are perspectives that can only be uh, uh, seen through the eyes of another person. Um, so one of the critical questions that was asked uh, that set me on a journey to Reformed theology was I was with a Reformed Baptist church planter in Boston years ago, and uh, we were both involved in church planting in, among different ethnic groups in, this, in the larger metropolitan area. And he asked a question that I just thought, man, I've never heard anybody ask such a thing. And the question was, what is the purpose of Boston and God's providence? And I was like, wow, that's a pretty good question. I've never thought about that. In fact, no one in my theological tradition would even come up with that question. You know, it was just sort of like outside the bounds of sort of the, so the framework of the theology that I had been a part of. And it made me step out of my own theological tradition and say, wow, that's a good question. Now, I didn't like come up with the perfect answer, but at least the question got me thinking about things that I hadn't been thinking about. So, so our, our mutual edification uh, it, it can work in this way in terms of spiritual uh, growth. And it doesn't have to be uh, you know, edification that comes exclusively through the ordained elders or whatever, just through the fellowship, you know, the conversations, the encouragement, the, pr the prayer that go, uh, is being, con being uh, conducted. Now, the transition here to outward things is interesting to think about. So, at, to, up to this point, we've been talking about, you know, uh, things that have 
kind of a, a character of, of uh, spiritual uh, spiritual nature. Uh, but now uh, we're told that there are outward things that are included in this communion. So, so it reads, as also in relieving each other in outward things, according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion as God offereth opportunity is to be extended unto those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, that's a fascinating set of statements there, but let's just think about outward things. So what are outward things? What are, what's being alluded to? Diathanol or in or service oriented things like I need beer. <laughs> So the diaconate, uh, you know, that literally is from the Greek service. And uh, so there are things that need to be done. And what's interesting when you think about diaconal ministry is it's not like um, when you think about the offices of the church, um, you know, it's not as though some of those offices are like the, the, the work of the elders relates to Christ, but the work of the diaconate does not. Essentially, what you have is a division of labor, both derived from the ministry of Christ. So the work of the diaconate uh, is an ordained uh, uh, office in the church that perpetuates uh, this particular side of Christ's ministry. So when Christ went around doing good, healing the sick, you know, that kind of stuff. That's the dimension of Christ's ministry, apostolic, as, as, as the apostolic ministry is continuing that the diaconate is continuing to, you know, to, 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 to uh, administer. So it's not like, you know, uh, there's an apostolic office here and then there's like their helpers. <laughs> and they're both uh, apostolic in character. And that's one of the, I think, reasons why the same qualifications are required of both. It's not like we have two different sets of qualifications to the same qualifications. Um, now, this is where limitations or things to immediately come to mind. You know, well, how far does this go? You know, and this is one of the areas that we're going to get into, you know, a, a conversation about how far this goes in the next, uh, the next paragraph. But they, there is you know, uh, an allusion to or a statement that alludes to your abilities. Obviously, you can't do things you can't do. <laughs> so it's not like everybody is required to do everything. Um, but uh, there are abilities uh, and then there are necessities, meaning that there are things that just have to get done. Um, so when we think about that, when we think about our abilities, um, you know, this is where spiritual gifts are often uh, brought up to help us think about, okay, what are our abilities? Um, I think when we think about those, though, spiritual gifts, we have a tendency, because of the influence of Pentecostalism, to think about that uh, exclusively in sort of highly sort of, uh, I guess, histrionic or dramatic terms. You know, I have a word of knowledge, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, whereas it could mean, I've got a hammer. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <coughs> I, can, I can help out with that. So, you know, when we think about it in the broadest sense, you know, our abilities, you know, our, our, our natural talents, our professional sort of skills, our knowledge, these are to be uh, available to others uh, in the church. Uh, as needed. And how far that goes, we'll get into that in the, next, in the next paragraph. But there is a point here made that it's not just our little church, you know, that there needs to be a sense that we have a connection to the larger church. That's what this next statement says. Which communion, as God offereth opportunity, is to be extended to unto all those who in every place call upon the name. That you know, meaning Madagascar, I guess. You know, there are people there who call upon the name. 
At a practical level, though, I mean, we can't do a whole lot for the folks there in Madagascar um, or even in the next town. But there is a sense in which, as best we can, we, we, we should do what we, what we can. Familiar with the concentric circles of concern? Does that ring a bell? So concentric circles, it's just a very commonsensical way of looking at things. You know, here you are. There are people who you know immediately in your circle, you know, the nearest circle, family, friends, work associates, neighbors, and so forth. And then you go a little further out, and there are people that you know about, maybe know through other people. You have, a, you know, there's a less, there's a, a weaker claim that those people have on you, but there's still people that you be, should be, you know, concerned about and try to help. And then you get further out, and you see how it goes, you know. So, you know, this is something that, that uh, Charles Dickens had a lot of fun with. What was the name of that gal who was concerned about people halfway around the world but couldn't care less about her neighbors and her family? I can't remember her name. Mrs. Goodbuddy or something like that. Yeah, that's the way Dickens was. He always had these names, you know, that told you exactly what the person was. But she was like, you know, she loved humanity in general. It's just her neighbor she hated, you know, that kind of thing. So I, but I think that, you know, that kind of gets at, um, at this, um, you know, uh, do the best that you can for those nearest to you. That that doesn't mean that you don't care about people in the next circle or further out. It's just there's just not as much you can do. Yeah, Dan. Do you think the uh, that concentric circles um, changes at all in our information technology age? It's yeah, like we're aware of everything, everywhere, all the time. Yeah, and it's overwhelming to the point where it's almost, uh, so Dan's asking, you know, with all this high-tech stuff, you, learn, you know about stuff going on halfway around the world, you probably don't know, you probably know more about what's going on halfway around the world than the people next door, you know, in the, in the house, what, what's going on there. Um, yeah, I, and I think it's, it can be almost debilitating. You just have so much information, you know, what can I do? And what can you believe, particularly in this world of deep fake, where the technology has become so... Good, is that the right word? Yeah, well, you're just not really sure you can believe your eyes. You know, is that really what's going on? Did I really see an account of something that was like, you know, a genuine event, or was this fabricated? I, I saw this one piece uh, on Instagram. It was kind of spooky. There was this, this guy, and he looks like your typical, you know, sort of uh, working-class American guy from the South. And there's a burning car behind him. And, you know, you can see, you know, rioting in the streets. And, and he's just there as a narrator. And by the time the, the, the thing is done, the recording is done, not only was the fire fake, the riot fake, but he was fake. And he says, and I'm fake. <laughs> you know, it, was, it wasn't like... <clears throat> You know, watching a you know Godzilla or something with the, you know, dubbed or <laughs> it's <was> like <coughs> it was like I am AI, is what he said. Uh, this my face is a composite of many faces. So why did why did this guy get on? He's not even real. I know. <laughs> but what, what the people who made the basically the people who made it. Say just you can't you can't be sure of anything you see. And if this fooled you, then a lot of things could be fake out there. You just don't know. I don't believe any of the local news I believe Fox News. <laughs> well, thanks for that. <laughs> um, I I think well here's my personal experience with with news. Every single story that I knew something about personally, they got wrong. Every single time. And it could have been Fox News, even. <laughs> uh, it's, it, when, you, when, you have that, when you have enough experiences like that, you're like, man, uh, there, are these, uh, there are these agenda, you know, that are being pursued. People who are, like, I, you know, I'll read things about people I actually know personally. I was like, that is so wrong. Just had it happen this week with Patrick Deneen. There's a, Patrick Deneen is a friend of mine, teaches at Notre Dame. And there's a movement now to cancel him at Notre Dame. 
And I'm like, and the, the things they're saying about him are just nuts. He's like, no, he's not the Ayatollah Khomeini. He's, he's really not. <laughs> it's just crazy stuff. But people, that's, that's all they know. They heard about this, about him. You know, they immediately leap on it. We're so susceptible to want to trust. I don't, somebody would point out, I don't know who it was, the first person that pointed out that just like you experienced, you, you experience time after time after time that maybe even it's a direct intera interaction with the media and then what they actually do with it. Oh yeah. And you see that, but then the next day you pick up the newspaper and you <laughs> believe everything you read. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so, you know, uh, the Colombian uh, took, took umbrage at some things that occurred uh, during Pride Month and some things that some people that we know, you know, uh, said in response to it, and they wanted to dig into it. They in one of our church, you know, someone in our fellowship was targeted by them, and I just said, "Don't you give them anything. Do not answer the phone. <laughs> Do not give them anything to work with. Just say no comment. Move on." because they will be on you like a bunch of piranha for months. It won't go away. I've experienced this personally. It won't go away. And it's sort of like this comedy of errors. You keep correcting it and they keep misunderstanding the correction. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> ah, whatever. <laughs> I just go away, leave me alone. Anyway. Anyway, I guess, well, how do we get there? <laughs> it's your fault, Dan. <laughs> but it, but it, you know, how do we know what's real on the other side of the world? I think that's a legitimate thing to con consider. Yeah. Maybe that'll help us, since we don't, since that's also confusing, that it'll help us to focus locally again and not, yeah. not, not worry about all that, but right. be skeptical, but don't forget about what's right in front of us. Yeah, I think there's a larger measure of responsibility that we have for things that we have direct knowledge about, for sure. Okay, well, let's let's take a look at this next section. And I have oh, a, sure. an yeah. observation, and this goes back to the days that we were discussing <coughs> church membership and, and the common areas made. By the way, if we, we can thank Martin Luther for a lot of this idea of communion of the saints. I see that was one of his top priorities, was what he called the priesthood of all believers. Um, but he says here, which communion? as God offer opportunity is to be extended unto all those in every place call upon the name of the Lord. And when we talk about communion, we do talk about the Lord's Supper. And we do talk about what is called church membership, whether that's something we want to go at length and just discuss. But for me, I guess it seems to be more of a, a general call for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, whereas in, in, in denominations and churches we've had certain requirements such as baptism, or your belief on baptism, <clears throat> or your belief on pedo-baptism. Sacraments is coming up next. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> for, in terms of church membership, see, yeah. I mean, this is a membership, this is polemic, I think it's a little too uh, the call of the church is whoever, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord. So like the text is referred to as Acts chapter 2, and they weren't, they weren't having certain requirements. Now, maybe requirements ought to be established later on. But I mean, does this, does this have any bearing on that question? What, what, what are the requirements of a church to become members, I guess? Well, that's a, that's a good question. So, for example, uh, when it comes to so to summarize what, what Victor is uh, thinking about or addressing him, if I get this wrong, correct me, but in terms of the marks of membership, so baptism would be an example, uh, does that uh, mean that we exclude the unbaptized who confess the name, that kind of thing? Um, I do think that the sacraments are a means by which um, you know, we mark people as belonging to the church. 
and uh, particularly with communion, their, their ongoing participation in the church. Uh, I think that there needs to be a little bit of, I guess, space for the exceptions. Um, let me give you an example. So, uh, the thief on the cross, you know, that's the classic one, you know. Um, but another would be, uh, you know, someone who maybe has exercised faith in Christ, uh, but has uh, not been properly instructed, uh, doesn't understand the significance of baptism, for example. For, you know, you think about the Salvation Army, they don't do either of the sacraments. I don't know if you're familiar with the Salvation Army and its history, but it's a, an organization which uh, initially was kind of what we would call today a parachurch organization, didn't really think of itself as a church, but because of its peculiar nature, more or less became kind of de facto a church, and people worshiped in the Salvation Army, uh, local corps, all kinds of interesting kind of stuff associated with that. But uh, one of the things that the Booths, uh, the founders of the Salvation Army, in order to reassure the denominations or the churches in England that they weren't like competing with them, is they didn't do that stuff. So they would have like a chapel, which in which, you know, the emphasis was always on, you know, responding to the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. And, you know, the people that they were interested in reaching were people who were unchurched, people who oftentimes were kind of outside the normal polite circles of society, people living on the street and, and so forth. So it kind of made sense. But what now we have is a, a situation where we, there are people who have grown up in, you know, the Salvation Army and think of that as their denomination and never been baptized and have never been to a communion service. You know, how do we, how do we deal with that? I think what we need to do is say, hey, you guys need to, you know, belong to a real church, <laughs> you know, and it practices the, the sacraments. <coughs> but I guess that's what I'm getting at with it when it comes to the, is, so I've, I've met a number of, and I've known a number of people who are in the Salvation Army over the years, and I've, and I've considered them Christians even though this is a pretty big gap in their practice. Does that make sense? I worked three years with the Salvation Army, and they were big people, but they didn't seem to do too much. <laughs> well, that's kind of exactly the opposite of their intention. <laughs> anyway, I um, don't want to get too much into the Salvation Army, but I was just using them as an example. Salvation Army wasn't on my mind. Oh, I didn't think it was. What was on my mind is this local congregation. Okay. And it's probably a question that the elders and such. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's an ongoing question. What What is required for someone to become a member of this church? Well, yeah, when we get to sacraments, which is next chapter, we'll definitely dive into that. Now, what I want to do, though, is spend uh, the last part of our time on number three here, because there are a couple of things that are addressed here that are actually, I think, uh, statements with particular groups of people in mind. So, this communion uh, which the saints have with Christ doth not make them any wise partakers of the substance of his Godhead or to be equal with the Christ in any respect, either of which to affirm is impious and blasphemous. Now, um, one of the things that uh, has occurred over the course of uh, the history of the church is there have been movements which have emphasized communion with God and the participation in God's life uh, to the point where it becomes a little bit unclear where the line of demarcation goes, separating the, the believer from God himself. And you know, there, and I, I think this is, this is an incorrect way of, of thinking about this particular doctrine. Uh, this is not what this group of people believe, but I think that sometimes people can fall into thinking in these terms. Uh, for example, theosis in the Eastern Church uh, is the, the conviction that, um, you know, when we are participating in the life of God, there is a kind of sanctifying and glorifying dynamic to that. Uh, and we are in God. Um, 
sometimes people have from the outside looked at that and say, well, are you guys saying that you are becoming God? You know, uh, and sometimes the way they'll describe uh, what they believe can leave you unsure what they mean, <laughs> you know. But uh, I think properly understood, that's not what they mean. But I do think there have been other groups that uh, that's exactly what they mean, <laughs> you know, that, that you're becoming God. Um, and here, the Westminster Divines are trying to help us see that uh, when it comes to our relationship to God, we will always be who we are. Our individuality will never be uh, obliterated. But at the same time, uh, we are in Christ. And, uh, and because of that, we enjoy the benefits of God's life. Think about it this way. Have you ever heard like uh, some kind of new agey person say something like, God is like an ocean and you are like a raindrop. And there will be a day when you will fall into the ocean and you become part of the ocean. And what happens then? There's no more raindrop. There are, that's definitely an Eastern way of thinking. Um, I'm actually thinking of like, like India, <laughs> not just Greece, but like that's the way sometimes. And you'll get that new agey kind of thing. Sometimes even in certain Christian circles where people have been, haven't been properly instructed, properly catechized. Um, they'll kind of infer certain things that are not intended to be so. One of, one of the things I think that's marvelous about the Christian faith is that our participation in God's life one in the same moment makes us more and more like God, but it also makes us more and more ourselves. So it's not as though there's ever a point of, of uh, extinction or, you know, the loss of, of, of... So like when we, when we look at the book of Revelation and we see the multitudes, each of those people are people, you know, the saints before the throne, right? The countless. It's not just a, a big blob. There are individuals still. Yeah, David. Yes. That's right. So naming, yeah, that's a very naming is one of the ways we distinguish and identify a particular thing or person, right? So the fact that um, that there is this name is a beautiful promise. Now, the other side of this, I think they've got the Anabaptists in mind, for sure. <laughs> Nor doth their communion, one with another, as saints, take away or infringe the title or propriety which each man hath in his goods and possessions. So, in other words, uh, the tendency uh, for some uh, groups to use Acts chapter 2 as like the model. Uh, you know, they, no man said his goods were his own, you know, they shared everything and that kind of thing. That's been the basis for all sorts of utopian uh, enterprises, in, even in the United States. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the Shakers today in my sermon because uh, there's, a, there's a tendency uh, to get, you know, every, like I noted, everything wrong but in two ways, too much or too little of anything. And with the Shakers, uh, Mother Ann Lee, um, she established uh, this group, uh, and uh, in that group, all of the families who were converted into Shakerism uh, divested themselves of their property, and the property was held in common. Not, it was basically uh, just dissolved, and. Uh, they shared their children in common, uh, but there was no sexual um, issue because that was prohibited. So they were all celibate. So the idea was that, yeah, that's, that's why we don't have shakers today. <laughs> so it was a fascinating movement. Mar Marla and I have been to a number of villages, shaker villages, and it's, it's uh, one of the things that's, uh, if, you, if you want an interesting, to watch an interesting documentary, uh, Ken Burns, the guy who did the Civil War series, 
He also did one of the Shakers. Uh, I think a Simple Gifts is the title of it. It's a fascinating uh, thing because the, the Shakers were really remarkable in their ingenuity. They in, invented the circular saw, uh, the flat broom, you know, shaker furniture, you know, shaker boxes, all that kind of stuff. But in New England, to this day, they are revered, particularly by super crazy left-wing people. And so you'll go to like a Shaker village and there'll be, you know, all of these Yo-Yo um, Ma, Ken Burns, all these luminaries from, you know, sort of the New England left praising the Shakers. And, it, and it's because um, of this dimension, you know, they divested themselves of property, shared all things in common and died out. <laughs> But they, they, an over-realized eschatology. Yep, David. I find that uh, that similar trait um, is in those who are basically non-religious. So like you see minimalism and volunteerism uh, on the flip side of the coin. So the shakers, everything's in common. And you had a guest on the podcast a couple of times ago. And uh, he stated that America would never be Marxist because our patterns are developed in this Puritanism mode, so that even for lost people, we, we go into this Puritanism mode of fixing things in terms of, you remember that talk? Well, it might have been Patrick Deneen. It could have been, but so I see that pattern in some of these, uh, you know, uh, it was typically, uh, the millennials that really got into this minimalism. There was even a documentary on it. And so it's like, <coughs> I can see this pattern happening even with them. Well, it's, 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 a, it's like a, a pattern, it's a cycle in the history of the United States that goes back. So like, the, this is like my third or fourth experience with wokeism. I mean, it had earlier manifestations, you know. Uh, I can remember stuff in the, in the 90s. I remember stuff in the late 70s. Uh, I remember stuff in the 60s when I was a kid. You know, I lived in, in, you know, close proximity to uh, a major university because my father worked there. So um, this kind of thing, and then if you just keep going further and further back, you see it, you see it. But in the 19th century, there were a number of utopian experiments. Um, a man, uh, is it Amanda? No, it's a, a manna. I think it's a manna. Um, there, there are a number of books that, that describe all of these different attempts to create a kind of utopian uh, community. And they're largely Anabaptist in character, and they're um, very often um, you know, drawing directly from Acts chapter 2. And what the... Uh, you know, what we have here with Westminster Divines is they're saying, uh, that's not the communion we're talking about. We're not talking about communism. <laughs> you know, uh, communism is not uh, the communion of saints. So the communion of saints acknowledges the rights of people to their possessions. So the fact that Barnabas sold that field, well, it was his field to sell. You, you get my point? It wasn't like they confiscated it. It wasn't like they said, you have no right to that. And there were people probably who had plenty of fields that they didn't sell. Um, you think about Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah, yeah. Two, two chapters later, right? right. He's told, hey, you, you could have done with it what you wanted, but you, you told us you gave it all, yeah. and you didn't. And yeah. that's why you're being... Right. right. It was the fact that you lied to the Holy Spirit that you're getting this treatment, <laughs> this punishment. <coughs> well, it's, well, yeah, so... Uh, with Ananias and Sapphira, as Tom noted, uh, you know, the apostle said, it was your field. In other words, they acknowledged it was your field. You could have done anything you wanted with it. The problem wasn't the fact that it was your possession. The problem was that you sold it and led everybody to believe you gave it everything to the church. That was the sin. It wasn't the fact that you possessed a field. That wasn't the sin. Yep. I, in talking about the Shakers, I was thinking about the Amish, and I... I listen to a couple of podcasts where the Amish are almost being revered as well. Do they have anything to do with this? They're very different. Uh, one of the ways you know that uh, a group of people are, have got, got some good things going for them is when the left don't like them. So the left don't like the, the Amish. 
<laughs> they think the Amish, uh, well, they're into big families and, you know, they actually own stuff and they're getting rich. That's what, yeah, well, I mean, the communities, uh, obviously there's a lot of mutual ha ha care. You know, an Amish barn raising is like a thing to witness. But it's not like, okay, when we're done with the barn, it belongs to the local Amish church. It's Bob's barn, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So there is a sense in which, now, one of the things that's fascinating, have, has anybody been to Lancaster County recently? The wealth of the Amish is becoming more and more conspicuous. I remember I was, I was at this, like, Amish store, and this, like, Mercedes drives up. Big, like, SUV Mercedes with the whole family inside it. Blacked out bumpers. No chrome, nothing like that. As plain a Mercedes as you could get. And they're all plain Amish <laughs> inside. And they probably paid cash. <laughs> As they, they're like, I'm not exaggerating. Some of the wealthiest people uh, you ever want to come across. Why? They have no debt. The, they, the farms that they've held are in the same family for generations. You know? Yeah. Just thinking about the Shaker tradition and how <clears throat> the number of people today who have not had any children, yeah. they will not have any children, and they are those who vote and think completely in socialist terms. Yeah, yeah. That they, it's like the Shakers, we won't need to worry about them in about 100 years. <laughs> it's, it's really the way it is. I, and I and I think uh, this is sort of a kind of a not, uh, kind of a pattern um, when you live in households as they're understood historically around the world, then you think in terms of generations. Uh, when you lose that, and all you think about is as you know as people as individuals, You'll, and common things are like you know the, the state then you don't think it turns to generations. Yeah. My brother lives in a co-op in Corvallis. Okay. They have their own condo or house apartment, yeah. but they share meal, dinner. Yeah. They all come together and share a meal. They share a shop, they share a garden, yeah. they help each other out. Yeah, that's, there's a lot of great things with that. Uh, so it's not as though we can't uh, develop sort of um, institutions that have a unique character. The, the problem with those sort, the institutions of that sort is they tend to have a lifespan. They tend to get to a certain point where they just sort of expire. Um, and often they're made up of people who are unattached to other things, um, unattached to households, for example. Um, and so I'm not like against them in principle or anything. Uh, I think that they, they have a, a place and they can be great places to live for people who maybe don't have family or whatever, uh, or maybe family doesn't, don't want them to be with them, <laughs> stuff like that. But uh, they do tend to expire. Other thoughts? We've gotten to that time. So I guess the main thing is, is what, what we see the Westminster Divines trying to uh, affirm here is Yes, we are uh, united, we're bound to each other, we have communion, but we don't get absorbed into the Borg. <laughs> it's not, we don't lose our individuality. Uh, we don't uh, lose our property. Uh, on, the, on the contrary, the reason why you have something to give is because you have something. You get, you get, so in other words, you don't really have generosity in a, in a situation where there's no property because it wasn't yours to give away anyway. It's only when you have something that you can give something. It's only because you have a distinct person, you know, personality and distinct life and identity that you can actually get to know other people who have a distinct life and personality and gifts and so forth. And so it, it's, it's a it's marvelous paradox that the closer we get to God, the more we are what God made us to be and the closer we get to other people, the more we appreciate what distinguishes each other, you know, each person from the other person and say, well, you've got those gifts, I need those gifts. Like with regard to, you know, I've used this illustration many times, 
with my wife and I, I mean, there are things that she can do I can't do and vice versa, and that's great. That's the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be mutually dependent. Not independent of each other, but, but interdependent. You know, that's really important. And it works that way in the church, too. We shouldn't be thinking about how we can like, make everybody fungible and interchangeable and that kind of stuff. Uh, we should be thinking about, wow, that person has something that we all need, and we should, be, we should cherish that person for that reason. Okay, well, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, this ref uh, opportunity to reflect on the communion of saints. Help us, Lord, uh, as we endeavor to put this into practice in our church and in our lives, to glorify you as we do and to keep, uh, you know, from falling into the airs in one way or the other that so often seem to be uh, a problem for the church over the years. Uh, help us as a church to, to do uh, a good job of communing with each other, but also uh, communing with you. In Christ's name, amen.